John Miller is, amongst many other roles, husband, father, musician, marathoner, mechanic, and pilot. The music you just heard is his own handiwork. Married to Cora Lou Miller for 45 years and counting, two sons call him dad, and many kids call him and Cora Lou grandpa and grandma. For John Miller, he doesn't just fly in the air, but figuratively on land as well. He's an avid distance runner who qualified for the Boston Marathon at 72 years young in 2015. He's also a part-time miniature train engineer, a hobby of his that has led him to build his own engine, the train's compartments, and all the trimmings. The two other roles I mentioned, mechanic and pilot, are the reasons John finds himself with me today. But before the story is over, those roles are but part of the story and song that John and Cora Lou Miller are in. We arrived in spring of 1973 with a wife and two small children, ages two and seven. Just a couple of suitcases and, uh, yeah, not a whole lot. So John, Cora Lou, and their kids found themselves in Papua, Indonesia, and were stationed in the country for 24 years. Now I'm going to step back for a moment to orient you. Papua is one province out of 34 such provinces of Indonesia, situated north of Australia across the Arafura Sea. Papua shares an island with the West Papua province to the west and the separate country Papua New Guinea on its border to the east. And while Papua is the largest province of Indonesia, but also as of the latest census in 2010, it is the most sparsely populated province tied only by its neighbor West Papua. Geographically, it is part of Oceania, along with Australia and numerous other islands that divide the Indian and Pacific Ocean. Then, uh, of course, arriving in what's now called Papua was quite a shock. The country's name, as he mentioned, is now called Papua. But it may have started serving in the country in 1952, and back then it wasn't Papua. It was Dutch New Guinea and became West Erian in 1969. Then when the Millers arrived, the country was Erianjaya. It was only in 2002 that the province became known as it is today, Papua. And, fascinating the name changes in history may be, it wasn't why the Millers embraced Papua as home. Not that that was easy in its own right. We didn't really know exactly what to expect. We had uh, done language study over in Java. We had only about uh, nine months of language study, but it was enough to get us started. But it did become home as Papuans embraced the Millers as well. I think it became home within about the first five or six years that we were there, we, when we really got a good handle on the language, when most of our friends were Indonesians or Papuan people, when our kids were well settled in the school there, uh, it really felt like home. And when a place becomes home, there are certain stories and creatures that are part of that home. Oh, the dog. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay. You're talking about Froelich, and it was a big German shepherd, and we were living in the town of Wamana in the Central Highlands. And um, the, the local uh, police chief of the village, a nice guy that we got along with real well, he had a pet cassowary bird. A cassowary is kind of a large flightless bird, kind of like a, it looked like a small ostrich type thing, stands about five feet tall. Uh, it's not a real big bird, probably weighs no more than 50 pounds or so. It's a very dangerous, a vicious bird. And um, occasionally we would, we would pick up medical emergencies from the jungle where people have been kicked or disemboweled by these birds when they were out hunting. These injuries would come about from the cassowary birds because of their powerful kick, and alongside that, their inner toe had a very sharp claw. I remember Froelich, the dog, was uh, in the house at the time, and uh, this crazy cassowary was running around the outside of the house, and the dog seemed to see it and started barking at the, at the cassowary and got out of the house. And that, that bird chased the dog around the house several times and kicked him real badly. 
that evening he died. Our, uh, our load crew, our national workers, came around that evening, you know, and they said, oh, we're so sorry that your dog got, got killed. Now, you're not planning to bury him, are you? And so the next couple of days, I'm sure the dog provided uh, nourishment for them and their families. So John discovered in Papua that cassowary birds were not to be trifled with. But as part of the culture, they could also be a source of entertainment, so long as one was wary, as he and his friend found out. I was visiting a missionary down in the lowland jungles. And uh, again, in the village, sometimes the people had pet cassowaries. And we were there at the end of a day of flying. And we were up on the veranda of his house, which was on stilts about, oh, five feet off the ground, because it was a marsh area that was swampy. And here this cassowary bird came running up to us. And Costa said, oh, let's just stay up here on the porch. It's safe for us up here. And then came up and was looking at us. And there was a stalk of bananas right there. And Costas pulled off a banana and pitched it up in the air. And the bird caught it and swallowed it. Now, the bird's neck is about the size of your arm. It's not very big, and the head like that. And you can see this banana slide down his throat into his chest. And Costas threw him another one. And it slid down. And pretty soon, the, the bird's neck was full of all these bananas and sticking out his mouth. Stupid bird. <laughs> and ran off, I guess. So it was that cassowary birds were a normal occasion that the Millers became accustomed to. And as John learned about the cassowary, the Papuans came to learn about John Miller. They realized quick enough he wasn't as dangerous as they quickly realized he wasn't as dangerous as a cassowary. But they weren't quite sure what to think as they saw him arrive from the sky that first time. We'll hear about his introductions with the locals at the airstrips after we come back. Did you know you can make an even bigger impact in the lives of isolated people by setting up a recurring gift? Your recurring monthly gift makes it possible for MAF to be there for people in remote places that they need help most. By setting up an ongoing monthly gift, you are helping MAF stay better prepared to consistently bring help to people living in remote parts of the world. Aviation and technology ministries, like MAFs, are complex and costly, especially considering where MAF serves. No cost is too great when it comes to people knowing and experiencing the love of Jesus Christ. Please consider signing up one time for a recurring gift. It's easy to do and you can cancel anytime. Set up your recurring gift at maf.org donate. Thank you for bringing hope to people living in isolated places around the world. Well, I, I had the privilege of flying a lot of different kind of airplanes over there. Anything that didn't hide the keys away from me on, I'd managed to get into. So I flew fixed-wing uh, bush-type airplanes and float planes and then helicopters as well. Flying, of course, was quite different from what I had done in the States, uh, flying commercially for several years, uh, air taxi, and then for a corporation flying uh, more sophisticated aircraft with all the navigational aids to go over there where there's literally nothing. And even before GPS back there, uh, it was all dead reckoning and pilotage, you know, a heading and a time, and hopefully you got there. So we kind of generally knew about where we were. John was a pilot and could get to places no one else could and few others had reached far up Papuan valleys. These locations and tribes' first experience with an aircraft could likely be an MAF helicopter, since there weren't any ready-made airstrips for MAF Cessnas at the time. For these meetings, no matter how well missionaries prepared the locals and the pilots, well... I'll let John describe. Vakabus tribe, uh, 
the missionaries uh, had wanted to reach out to that tribe, but there was no way to get there by water and uh, by boat. Uh, so they, they asked us to come with a helicopter and we located the clearing and were able to land there successfully. And the people, of course, were very, very uh, curious, having never seen a vehicle like that or even white people before. And so it was, uh, it was uh, kind of a, it wasn't really a scary experience, but it was something that made us nervous. One of the missionary ladies who was the, the, the linguist, that, the tribal linguist that knew the language, people were amazed that it was actually a human female. And when she came back to, the, to, to her home base and the other missionaries came out to meet her, they wondered what all the white, all the, the handprints were all over her chest because they were trying to determine if she was indeed a human female. The tribe members were within reason to be curious about their newcomers and the tools and equipment they had with them. Their inquisitiveness extended to John and his inventory when the opportunity presented. She was uh, giving a, um, a story in one of these little villages we were at, and I was sitting in the back with my camera. That uh, when, you, when you hit the shutter, release, it sounds like you're dropping a typewriter. It makes, it makes a noise like that. And so the people all grabbed my arms, and they're holding on, and, you know, trying to, and they were saying, boss, boss, boss. And I remember them grabbing my arms and... Uh, so I didn't shoot any more pictures. And they, they had their hands all over me, through my hair and everything. And one guy had his hand inside my shirt, and he started yelling. And all the people got real excited. And I said to the missionary, what, what was that about? She said, well, they discovered your belly button and that you really are a human being. And up until that point, they really thought we were ghosts. At that point, I guess they realized we weren't. <laughs> his belly button cleared up their physical existence. But other aspects of their arrival needed further clarification still. I remember she was uh, telling the people about God coming down from heaven. And so uh, the next time we, uh, the other, other helicopter pilot came in, they came out with a whole bunch of gifts for him because they said, oh, these are for God, thinking that he, was, he must have been God, the helicopter pilot. Being there for 24 years, the Millers became a mainstay of the MAF community. John was the lead pilot heading up the flight program, and Cora Lou found numerous ministries to support or create. Corley was trained as, uh, as a music major at Moody, Moody Bible Institute. When we got overseas, uh, she immediately found a, uh, a way at the Missionary Kids School to teach uh, music there. She also had several students uh, that were missionary kids there at the school that took piano lessons. But beyond that, uh, she would, uh, at the Indonesian churches out on the coast, the more developed area, where they would have either um, electronic keyboards, or in some cases, even a real piano, she would play there. And then she would train the Indonesians. And she had many, many uh, successful students. Um, one of them, Dimitri Buga, I just saw him uh, a couple of months ago. He's working in a Jakarta office. He was one of her students about 30 years ago. And he still leads music there at his church in Jakarta. And so she had a rather extensive ministry out there doing that. She did a lot, lot beyond that. She was uh, She's a licensed hairdresser, so she was a cosmetologist. She would do hairdressing all the time. I'd come home from a day of flying, and she just did three perms, and the place would smell like a chemical factory, you know? <laughs> but she loved doing that and, and doing people's hair for the ladies and doing haircuts for all the guys. That was quite a ministry she had. She also is, is a licensed ESL teacher, and so uh, she would do language uh, training, English language training for all of our Indonesian uh, mechanics and pilots that were there. Um, and um, 
pretty, pretty high level training. We got back to the States and we brought a couple of Indonesian students that wanted to, to do flight training in the US but had to get their English skills up to a higher level. They actually lived in our home for a year and a half learning English. She taught them every day. She wore them out with her English teaching and they were able to go on and be trained at Moody, Moody Aviation. John the pilot and Cora Lou the musician, hairdresser, and English teacher. The two of them were a source of inspiration and stability in the MF community of missionaries and the locals of their town. One of the projects that uh, I fell into, there was a missionary that we were serving, a linguist, in a place called Silimo, and they lived so far away from our main base out on the coast that for them to fly in a drum of diesel fuel to run their little diesel generator would cost hundreds of dollars, about $200 with the air freight and the cost of the diesel fuels, and so they could only afford to run just a little bit. But right beside their, their cabin, their, their house there, was this flowing stream. And I'd always wanted to build a water wheel, a water turbine. And so I did some research and I, I built what was, what was called a cross-flow water turbine, which kind of looks like a squirrel cage runner type thing. And it was about 12 and a half inches diameter. I still remember the dimensions and about 30 inches long with an inch and a half shaft on it with bearings. And we had some, uh, a couple of PVC pipes coming down from a little duck pond about seven or eight feet above it, and it would spin this turbine. And uh, I hooked it up to a, a brushless generator, and they were able to get about 2 kVA, about 2,000 watts out of that, so they could charge their batteries. They could have a little refrigerator there. They used that throughout the rest of their translation, and they didn't need to pay for expensive air freight to bring drums of fuel in. Eventually, in the early 90s by then, the Millers came home, continued to serve at MAF's headquarters, where John took over as MAF's machine shop coordinator. But just as the Millers took Papua back to the United States with them, the Millers left just as much of themselves in Papua, in unique ways that were seen and heard for years after their time there. Can you imagine teaching MAF children overseas in a location you may need to look up on Google because you never heard of it? One of the many ways MAF supports our missionary families is by providing teachers to help with the education of MAF children. We want our missionary kids to have a strong education, even if they're living in out-of-the-way places as their family serves isolated people. We look for teachers who have a strong walk of faith along with classroom teaching experience and teaching credentials. They will not only be teaching academic subjects and knowledge, but also be mentors and role models for the children they teach. To learn more about these exciting opportunities, you can call MAF at 208 498 0800 or go to maf.org slash serve to learn more. Yeah, they, they use kind of a kazoo, just a little split uh, bamboo thing about, about, about as wide as your thumbnail. Split down the middle with a tiny little thing and they would go and they would strum it. They would do that and they of course had drums. Everywhere you had drums of different types that they would be pounding on and uh, uh, we didn't see too many um, more sophisticated instruments than, than that. Music is special, the wonder of its sound crossing over borders and barriers so that you can speak with no language necessary. That last interlude you heard was Papuan music, made by the traditional Papuan bamboo mouth harp, and followed by a handmade four-string guitar. 
These instruments make for unique, distinct accompaniment for their style of song, which is known as a sing-sing, where one person leads by singing a line, and the people then repeat that line, and so on. A lot of the, the tribal music would be telling Bible stories, and it was fascinating. And they would sing it like a chant. They'd sing like, in the beginning was the word, and then the people would sing back, you know, in the beginning was the word. They'd go back and forth. They would tell amazing Bible stories with a lot more content than a lot of our praise music today. <laughs> and uh, it was it was it was great. They learn a Bible story from the from the missionary, and they'd put that into a song, and it would be a chant back and forth. And they they'd learn they'd learn great uh, theological truths that way. I never learned any of their music. You had to really know the language well to make it work well. I learned Indonesian, the national trade language, but of course, back in the villages, the national missionary might know a little bit of Indonesian, but they did mostly the work in their dialects. And I never, there were so many different tribes, I never tried to learn any of their music. And it was very, very involved and very sophisticated from their point of view. I never learned their language. And so, without the spoken language to bridge the gap, John instead opted for music to connect with the people he served whenever the opportunity and weight limit allowed. When I would go out for a week of helicopter flying, I would always allow enough room in the load to take a, my seven-pound guitar case. And it was interesting to arrive in a village with a half-million-dollar helicopter, and the people would come out and they'd kind of look at it and say, ho-hum, you know, they've seen them fly over. But when they saw my guitar, now there was something that could make music. Now that, that was a real interesting thing. My $100 Taiwanese knockoff guitar uh, was... Um, was a real interest to them because it would make music, and so they would want a little concert there. The Nationals were entranced by this different sound. Their interest in the music could be chalked up to novelty, for a large part, something the visitors would bring along with them, not something they would leave behind, not ordinarily. But there's always that extraordinary case, and John Miller found that while serving out in Yasakur. Yasakur is located in the southern coastal lowlands of Papua, it's a marshy, swampy area, and the houses were built on stilts to provide a dry floor and keep water from being an uninvited guest. The stilts did a fine job of doing just that. But airstrips were a different story. During high-tide seasons, land airstrips would be underwater and unusable for wheeled planes. So in Yasakur, John was using a float plane, switching over to use rivers as his airstrip. Just a simple Cessna 185 on... Uh... 2960 Edo floats. The ministry using that float lane was that to most of the villages down there on, in the southern jungles, they didn't have airstrips, but they all had rivers. And so uh, the missionary used the float plane to go out and do village visitation. Somebody before me had built a very clever uh, railway system using old Japanese World War II railroad tracks and uh, wheels or dollies from the Japanese World War II invasion of Indonesia. They had fashioned some rails down into the river and made kind of like a boat ramp. The airplane, you could load it onto this boat ramp and then with the nose facing uphill and start the engine of the airplane and draw and pull the boat ramp up out of the water, up on these tracks, up to, to high ground, level ground, where the, the hangar, if you will, or the over, where the airplane would spend the night sitting up there on, on, on higher ground. When we wanted to fly the airplane, we would get the airplane all started up and engine running at idle, and the workers would push the airplane back to the top of this uh, descending rail system, and by controlling the thrust of the propeller, I could lower the airplane slowly backwards down into the water. And so that's how that thing worked, and it worked successfully for many, many years. 
Sonyasakur was their home, their base, and their ministry among the locals, people mostly from the Osmat tribe. The people had at that time only recently received Christ, and the need for the light to shine bright in the area was evident. The Osmat people were very dark as far as emotionally, their personality, their uh, demeanor, very dark place. You, you would go into some of the villages and you'd feel kind of an oppression. And I was wondering, because I'm not a guy that, you know, feels a lot of that stuff, you know, but uh, you, could, you could really feel kind of a, an oppression. The light had been introduced, but there was work to be done for it to shine brighter, or in this case, louder, as one Osmat member would help the cause of the gospel amongst his own people. The National and the expat missionaries had built a church there, and we went to church service, and I was shocked to see a stand-up string bass that had been made, that had been whittled and carved out somehow, and um, it, uh, it, it, did, it had some kind of a bamboo string on it. It didn't make any kind of sound, but I was, where did you get this? And the missionary said, well, Pokum, the guy over in the corner there, made this because he had seen a picture that I had made a stand-up bass guitar from a picture. Now John was sure to point out that acoustics and sound engineering didn't translate well from that picture, but that there was something else about Pokum that stood out and make John take notice. Pokum was a, was a bright, shining young kid, and I kind of wondered why he got that way. God made him that way, obviously. So open and friendly and smiling and very different from the rest of his tribal people. So by John's own account, the person just described sure didn't sound like the usual somber Osmot. Pokum would have a story and sound all his own, and one that John Miller would learn more about in support just a little bit further on. Uh, Bob Fraser, the, uh, the missionary there at the base where we were at, led him to the Lord when he was a young teenager. Which no doubt explains much of the difference between him and his peers, and his cheery disposition helped him find his way into work at the MEF hangar there in Yasakur. Loading the airplane, cleaning the airplane, and, and helping around. He was a nice young kid, about, about 16 or 17, a real, real handsome Osmond boy, and real pleasant. All of these made him a well-rounded anomaly amongst the people. And if that's where Pokum's unique qualities ended, he would readily separate himself from others. But the last piece that made him stand out? Here's that kicker. He would hum. He would be humming and kind of like singing. Very unusual. The missionary made a comment about that. And so I realized this kid was really musical. And uh, so I, I, I got him a guitar from out on the, the, on the coast and brought it in and uh, showed him a couple chords on that. And I'll tell you what, that transformed him. Remember that stand-up bass of his and how enamored he was with it. Now he had a guitar, properly constructed that produced real sound. This was a revelation for him and whoever he shared with. And John Miller learned some new guitar repair methods because of it. That guitar never got a rest. It went back to the village, everybody had to play it, and I could hear it at night, you know, where they would be playing it. And within the first week, of course, he had broken a couple strings, so I, I got some strings for the thing and we restrung it. Within about a month, the frets, the metal parts down at the bottom, were all worn out from all the playing. And so I learned how to steal frets from the upper part of the guitar there where they, they were never used and then put them back in up, up there and pretty soon <laughs> going through all the frets. And then the guitar got borrowed by somebody and disappeared and he wants another guitar. So we got him another guitar. 
The immense joy of music translated over well with this stringed instrument. What didn't come over was an ear for the more contemporary style of music. Pocom was happy to walk the line between the traditional and the modern. You know, he didn't play three-chord songs like we're familiar with. Uh, they would just kind of get one chord and just do everything in one key, whatever it was. It, I would have to periodically retune them, told them how to retune the thing so it would sound somewhat good. But to them, any noise coming out of it was perfectly wonderful. It wasn't that kind of a three-chord song. It was all in one one key, and it wasn't even in tune. And so it would just add some ambience uh, to their to their singing. I can't really tell how effective it was, but uh, Pocom sure enjoyed it. It was wonderful. So by our Western standards, we might have kindly told Pocom that his gifting wasn't musical. But God doesn't have the same taste or requirements as we do when it comes to harmony, melody, chord progression, or time signature. Pocom likely wouldn't have made it onto The Voice or received some people's award. But it wouldn't have made a difference. Pocom found his way to praise the Lord. And he used it to shine the light and make a great noise. Pocom went on to be an evangelist. He became a great man of God there as he uh, grew up. He worked for me only about three years, four years, and I moved away to another part of the island. But the expat missionary who was working there sent Pocom off to Bible school, and then he became the church leader there. He had a dynamic influence on the, on the Osmot tribe down there. Like a good song with a catchy tune, music has that way of staying with you long after you remember hearing it on the radio or a playlist. You'll find yourself humming it, tapping your feet to a beat you hear inside your head, and next you realize a smile is spread across your face. Pocom embodied what the Millers accomplished with their musical outreach and all the other ways they contributed in Papua. Their impact continued on well after their time on the ground, although in Pokum's case, sadly not as long as they would have hoped for. He died about seven or eight years ago of malaria. He would have only been in his 40s or so, and that was a shame, because Pokum was, a, was an amazing guy, a lot of fun to have around. I've probably got some pictures of him somewhere. And the missionary uh, became so attached to him that that became their... Uh, their email address was Pukum, P-O-K-U-M, Pukum. Sad that may be, a song is considered sweeter the shorter it is, even if it's because you wanted it to last longer. And there isn't a much higher form of praise than being memorialized in someone's email address. But for that, I'm certain many others have their own ways remembering Pukum. Perhaps his smile, his outreach, or a certain homemade stand-up pace. And as you've heard this whole time, it was never just about the music. John and Cora Lou had their eyes on bigger goals and ideas than great musicians, or fantastic tunes, although they came by that along the way. If you have the joy of being with either of the Millers, it becomes apparent that they are always looking beyond to a bigger goal. John doesn't look back on his logbooks for the time of flight. He doesn't think that those hours add up to something all that remarkable on their own. It's a, it's a few under 15,000. I didn't quite get to 15,000. I'm probably about 100 short, I guess, something like that. But you know, it's not filling up a logbook. It's, it's full of all kinds of memories and stories. And every now and then I have to go back to that logbook to pull up some memories that people have asked about. When were you at this location? Who did you fly? And all that stuff. I still keep it around. After all those thousands of hours in the pilot's seat, behind both airplane and helicopter, 
John Miller came away with a different attitude, a different perspective. The airplane is a tool. I like to say I don't fly airplanes. I operate airplanes, but I fly people that carry the gospel. It's very dramatic to see the effect that the gospel has on the people over there, where the people were headhunters at war with each other all the time, and to see that change of heart attitude by the, by the tribal people, the people just a few years ago were killing each other. And to see that change was spectacular. You know, when I first got there, I was really interested in the flying part of it. You know, I wanted to get more flight experience, develop my skills, fill my logbook and everything. But over the years, I saw this change to where I began to realize how effective the gospel was and how dramatic a change it had in the hearts and lives of the people. And to hear the, the gospel stories that they would tell of the, the changes in their own life. And to see them carry on the gospel and to have a, have a vision to reach out to other tribes for Christ, that's, that's thrilling. Papua, the Millers, Cassowaries, the Osmat, Pokuam are part of the ongoing symphony that we contribute to here at MAF. And what a day it will be when we hear the song in full. Birdie for my size, birdie for my size, well that nine pound hammer. Thank you for listening to Flight Follow. We hope these stories bring you insight to the corners of the world where MAF uses aviation and technology to see people physically and spiritually transformed by the love of Jesus. If you'd like to hear more about MAF's ongoing work and ministry, you can at maf.org, where we have all the most recent news and stories from our programs, as well as updates about our missionary families who serve with MAF. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we'd love for you to stop by and say hi. A thank you goes out to the great team that helps bring these together. Tracy Weary, our Director of Marketing Communications, and Chris Burgess, our Communications and Media Manager. John Miller gets a heartfelt thank you for sitting down with me in the MAF machine shop amidst the fluorescent lights and tools and sharing stories from his own logbook. As we close, I want to remind you that we have other episodes of Flight Follow for you to queue up, and we hope you stay with us for another leg of the trip. This is Paul O'Brien, signing clear. <laughs>